Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Wolves of Wombleton by Ian Gordon The following account was mailed to a Cumbrian cryptozoologist in November 2019. The recipient, Wyndham Phipps, requested the account after learning of the paranormal investigator Peter Van Melsen's curious adventure near the North Yorkshire village of Wombleton just a month earlier. Dear Wyndham, how good it is to hear from you, old friend. And of course it would be my pleasure to put pen to paper regarding my recent visit to that quiet spot, but I must stress that caution be exercised in terms of what you intend to do with the information provided. There could be consequences, severe consequences. Keep this in mind as you read on. Hmm. Where shall I begin, I wonder? If we were face to face for this telling, I'd dispense with the regurgitation of facts all too clear to you. But, as you know, I'm a detailed devil, and would like to kick things off with some particulars, if you'll permit me. Here in Yorkshire we've a number of cryptids and ghouls, but of special interest to this case is the humble Bargeist, sometimes Burgeist, German for mountain ghost. Aside from the Bargeist's frequent appearances at Trollers Gill near Grassington, the fabled black dog has been said to roam the alleys and snickleways of York in quest of healthy throats. Hardly news to you, old friend, but it's important to note that, like the vampire, our ghoulish hellhound and occasional shapeshifter is allegedly incapable of crossing brooks, rivers, streams, etc. This point will become important later. Well, the story proper began with an urgent knock at my door in Rosedale. The unexpected caller was a chum of mine, a young lady by the name of Ellen Moore. The two of us have had our fair share of adventures together— her visit that October afternoon triggering the latest. "'Peter,' she called the instant I opened the door, "'what do you know about the Helmsley Dogman?' "'Excuse me?' I replied, a little taken aback by the intensity of her outburst. "'Wombleton,' Ellen continued, her emerald eyes wide with purpose. "'The Dogman, less than an hour ago.' Suitably charmed, I invited her in and, over a very hastily prepared pot of tea, listened to the events that had culminated in Ellen's eager thumping at my door. As it transpired, my charm had been out for lunch with friends at the Plough Inn, Wombleton's wonderful fifteenth-century public house. At a little after one p.m., a commotion outside attracted the attention of several patrons, and, before long, Ellen, her friends, and several others were jogging in the direction of Flats Lane, spurred on, as it were, by the blood-curdling howls of a young man. The man, a Wombleton resident, had been bitten, he claimed, by the dogman. "'The dogman!' the lanky local had yelled, blood gushing from a nasty-looking wound about his abdomen. "'Took a piece out of me!' The small crowd that had gathered around the man met his claim with a healthy dose of scepticism with the exception of Ellen, who, with her eagle eye, had already located the youngster's assailant, 
a dark shape on all fours, fleeing northward across a tract of open farmland. There! Ellen had yelled, her arm aloft, pointing towards the distant figure. A succession of gasps followed, as locals and tourists alike sought to identify the fleeing creature. A large dog? A big cat? A grey wolf? What on earth could the thing be? The emergency services were immediately summoned, while the victim's wound was tended to by an older lady who claimed to be a veterinarian. Someone was ordered back to the pub for a bottle of vodka, which was promptly applied to the youngster's wound, resulting in a great deal of pain for the poor fellow lying on the grass verge. Ellen winced as the vet wrapped the man's midriff with a scarf, shriveled at the thought of the monstrous mouth that had gnawed at the hapless chap. "'The dog-man,' the youth continued to mumble, rapidly losing consciousness, "'took a piece.' It was then that Ellen bid farewell to her friends, hopped into her car, and sped over to Rosedale. "'And it was heading northward?' I asked. "'Yes,' she confirmed. "'Must have crossed the A-170. I wonder if anyone else saw it.' "'Hmm,' I mused, climbing to my feet to study a map of the area I keep on the wall of the library. "'Can you describe the creature for me?' Ellen shrugged her shoulders— before saying, it was big, really big, like a huge wolf, all dark hair, and my young friend hesitated, as though she was on the cusp of retrieving an elusive memory. And, I prompted, and its coat glistened, she added. Yeah, like it had been through a puddle or something. The injured lad was damp and muddy as a result. And there was a smell, we all noticed it, you know, like wet dog— Nasty. I acknowledged her with a simple nod. You asked me what I knew about the Helmsley dogman, I said, eyeballing the map in front of me. Uh-huh, Ellen muttered, joining me by the map. Well, I continued, I once read a report pertaining to a curious sighting at St. Gregory's Minster. Right here, I said, indicating the location of the church on the map. As you can see, it's just north of Wombleton, a mile or so at the most. What kind of sighting? Ellen asked. More than just a sighting, really, I went on. It's connected to a cult. And with Ellen listening, red cheeks aglow on her pale face, I told her all about the cult of Yana. I'm going to assume you haven't heard of this particular cult, old friend. It isn't discussed often, and with good reason. Let me tell you what I told my young chum. According to a little-known Slovenian legend, there was once a creature that stalked the banks of Lake Bled, a shape-shifting being that for all intents and purposes would be classified today as a werewolf. Large and black, this thing would emerge from some hidden place every three to four weeks and prey upon those brave enough to stroll by the moonlit waters after dark. Residents of the town of Bled lived in fear of the beast, owing to the fact that many moons earlier, a band of farmers, driven to rage following a volley of attacks on their livestock, had set out one evening in pursuit of the strange and lone wolf they believed to be responsible. The creature, monstrous but timid, some later said, was driven into the mountains, forced into the gorge known as Ventka, 
where it had drowned in the torrential waters of the Radovna River. Had the beast returned to exact revenge? For those it preyed upon in all cases shared familial connections with the men and women who had driven the lone wolf to its doom. In time, the attack stopped, and the thing was never seen again. This potentially due to the beast having settled the score. And it was in the years that followed, continues the legend, that the cult of Yana sprang into existence, individuals dedicated to the re-emergence of a mythical being. To this day, hooded figures can be glimpsed from time to time, bent in prayer by the water's edge at Lake Bled, willing their master to rise from the depths of that cold pool. But what does a cult in Slovenia have to do with a church in Kirkdale? Ellen rightly inquired. The cult of Jana is no longer limited to Lake Bled, Ellen, I stated, lighting a cigarette. As cults grow, cults spread, and like a plague, the cult of Jana extended its tendrils into neighboring countries, establishing itself in every nook and cranny of the continent, including the British Isles. Crossing the room, I withdrew an appropriately dusty volume from the section of my library marked Philosophy and Religion, and invited Ellen to join me at the reading table, or coffee table if you want a more accurate description. There's a symbol, I said, that's rumoured to represent the cult of Yana. Look here, and I turned to page 222 of the reference book before me. Uh, forgive me for omitting the name of the book in this account, old friend. Ellen's gaze met the image in question. To describe it in basic terms, imagine the letter W stretched wide to form two distinct Vs, and, floating above it, a perfect O. In some depictions, like the one in the reference book, the symbol is surrounded by a black shroud, the hood of which is bathed in orange light, the light of the blood moon. It's a striking image. This symbol, I continued, indicating the characters within the shroud, is etched into the interior wall of St. Gregory's Minster. Ellen nodded slowly, her attention fixed on the pictogram before her. Which brings me back to the sighting that was reported there, I said. My emerald-eyed friend looked up at me then, groping for the remains of her tea. It was as far back as 1999, wintertime. A volunteer steward was sweeping the nave one afternoon, when there came a light knocking at the old timber door. This in itself was strange, as the church is open during the day, comers need not knock. Still, the steward was compelled to answer the summons, and made his way to the door. As I told the tale— I felt the old shivers travel up my spine, felt the need to clutch for the remains of my cup of tea, too. On opening the door, I continued, the steward locked eyes with an extremely tall individual, a heavy-set and rather beautiful lady, he said, whose posture was somewhat stooped, as though she was attempting to appear shorter than she really was. A conversation followed in which the steward sought to determine the purpose of the comer's visit, all the while trying to subdue a growing sense of foreboding, as the lady's disposition, he noted, began to change. 
She grew increasingly impatient, he said, this due to his insistence that he hadn't the time to provide her with a tour of the minster, that he hadn't the time to discuss the church's choir stalls and reredos, that, at that present moment, and this of course went unsaid, he had no desire whatsoever to permit the entry of such an unnervingly intimidating character. Steadfast in his commitment to duty, he politely closed the door, and returned to sweeping the nave. The knocking continued for a while thereafter, a knocking that gradually altered, from the distinct sound of knuckle on wood, to a more muffled clatter, that of a gloved fist or fur-covered, "'I think I get it,' Alan blurted, anticipating the conclusion. "'The lady was, what, a werewolf?' "'You said it,' I answered, half a smile on my face. Alan expelled a bellyful of air, before saying, "'I sure did.' "'The steward,' I continued, "'said that he felt the caller had been attempting to canvass the place, "'that the strange lady spent most of their exchange "'peering over his shoulder to get a better look at the church's interior. "'What was she looking for? "'And why knock at all if the door was open?' "'Beats me, Alan. But whatever the case may be, I think we'd better head over to Wombleton. If there's a connection between what you saw today and the thing that visited St. Gregory's back in ninety-nine, I'm sure we'll find it. Besides, opportunities such as this don't present themselves every day.' "'Every other day, perhaps,' my young chum remarked, grinning. "'She's a bright one, old friend. Perhaps you'll make her acquaintance down the line.' Off to Wombleton we went, in Ellen's little car. Our first stop was Flats Lane, to study the scene of the attack. The young victim was long gone, transported to the hospital in York for urgent treatment. A few curious locals still lingered, though, all of which were stood about, exchanging stories and theories. "'What happened here?' I asked, pushing Ellen's account to one side for the nonce. A burly character in a flat cap barked, Youngen were chomped, followed by the high-pitched tones of a pink-haired senior. Edward Dogman had done it. Dogman, aye, echoed the man in the flat cap. It's been roaming the place a few days now, added a spectacled teenager. It was seen rummaging through bins at the recycling centre. Who are you, anyway? barked the pink-haired lady. Just a concerned citizen. I remarked, looking to Ellen for support. I was here earlier, she stated. I saw the—and here she wavered—thing running away. Aye, we all saw it, love, said the burly chap, and it'll be back tonight. You think? Ellen asked. It's had a taste now, love. Mark my words. The locals were understandably agitated. The interloper had been little more than an old wives' tale prior to its attack on young Michael Dean. There was talk of going after the thing, guns blazing, plans to lure the creature into a trap. Several voiced the idea of spending time with family in other parts of the country. Whatever the outcome of their discussions, I felt it pertinent to acquire a head start. From the way the residents were talking— it seemed unlikely to me that any of them were aware of the volunteer steward's report of a giant wolf-like lady at St. Gregory's Minster in ninety-nine, but one should always err on the side of caution. 
Let's get out of here, I whispered to Ellen. Where next? she inquired. The church? Nodding in the affirmative, we returned to Ellen's car and made our way to Kirkdale. I wasn't aware of it at the time, but one of those hysterical Wombleton residents paid close attention to our departure. Now, I have to say that it wasn't my first visit to St. Gregory's. Antiquarians like myself are drawn to such places. How could I resist the lure of an eleventh-century church nestled in a tree-lined valley, a true escape from the hustle and bustle of cities, towns, and villages alike? One feels completely removed from civilization when in the presence of the minster, which, as I've said many times before, is why I'm always at peace when visiting yourself on the outskirts of Penrith, old friend. But back to the tale. We parked outside the entrance to the cemetery, where Ellen and I noticed only one other car in the car park. Twilight was upon us, and an eerie purple light danced atop the tree-line as we strolled between the old stones. Something was amiss. I sensed it. Ellen sensed it. And as we neared the church, our forebodings were intensified when we saw that the old timber door was wide open and a low, barely audible moaning was coming from within. A terrible smell was in the air, the pungent whiff of wet dog. We entered the church, crossing the shattered threshold. The door had collapsed under some sort of pressure, the cause of which we were about to discover. Lying on the cold stone floor was the mangled form of a volunteer steward. With the expulsion of his final breath, the ailing victim, a frail figure of a man, managed a single word. Yana. I later learned that the victim was a man from neighbouring Beedlam called John McConnell. His sixty-something years lay in a heap on the ground, legs askew, one arm bent beneath him, the other clutched at his throat. A pound of flesh had been gnawed from the poor fellow's neck, some of the jaw comprising the monstrous mouthful. Bloodshot eyes stuck out on stalks, the wispy and noticeably slick grey hair atop his head, standing on end, a testament to the abruptness of the horrendous assault on his slender body. His gore-covered clothes were wet with mud, fresh stuff that reeked of damp dog. "'Do you think?' Ellen began tentatively, her chin a-quiver. "'Yes,' I answered quickly. "'Seems he was attacked on the porch and driven through the door. "'What do we do now?' Lighting a cigarette with trembling fingers, I said, "'Let's have a look around.' We studied the fallen form of John McConnell. I'm sure we both felt a little trepidation— but there was nothing we could do for the man at that moment in time, and to call the authorities prematurely would undoubtedly hinder our search of the church. "'Is that the symbol?' Ellen blurted, pointing to what I knew to be the cult of Yana symbol above the shattered door on the interior wall. "'It is,' I confirmed, and the penny dropped. "'Of course,' I uttered. "'The symbol is a ward.' "'A ward?' A protective barrier, if you will. 
The symbol doesn't represent the cult of Yana at all. It's a ward intended to keep the likes of Yana at bay, Ellen ventured, which explains why the tall lady in the steward's account was forced to knock at the door. Precisely. Our search continued. What I was looking for, I hadn't a clue. I was groping in the dark, old friend. Why had the beast fled to the church, a place it couldn't possibly enter? Was it looking for something there? Was it the same creature that had called in the form of a tall lady all those years ago? Ellen was by the pipe organ when she summoned me. Peter, come and look at this. Within the cabinet that housed the keyboards, my emerald-eyed friend had discovered a pocket-book, hidden inside a much larger, dusty book-safe. A curious pocket-book, with a plain beige cover. Of interest to both Ellen and I was the book's back cover, upon which was printed that familiar pictogram, the ward symbol, enclosed by a black shroud, bathed in the orange light of the blood moon. The plot thickens, I muttered, and it's been undisturbed a long time, if the dust atop the book-safe is anything to go by. Do you think this could be what the tall lady was looking for? Ellen asked. Undoubtedly. The little book was filled with handwritten notes and roughly sketched maps. Several notable locations caught my eye. A stretch of the Wye Valley, Herefordshire, a portion of the Vistula River near Krakow, Poland, and the aforementioned Vintga Gorge near Bled, Slovenia. Most interestingly, though, was the inclusion of a local stream, Hodgebeck, a tributary of the River Dove, flowing down from the moors. "'Something's marked at the top of the stream there,' Ellen said, noting a crude sketch representing a structure of some sort, a mile or so north of St. Gregory's. A question mark hovered above it. Hamilton Watermill, she read. If there is a mill up there, it's abandoned, I stated. I've never heard of such a place. Why would it be marked in this book? Haven't a clue, I admitted. Judging by the inclusion of that uh, question mark, someone else wasn't sure about it either. We took the decision to contact the authorities then. We were questioned with regards to our presence at the Minster that afternoon, but were rapidly acquitted of any wrongdoing due to the condition of the victim. Naturally, the attack on Michael Dean in Wombleton and the death of John McConnell were attributed to the same assailant, the assumption being, thanks to the frantic ramblings of the residents of Wombleton, that a large dog was most likely responsible in both instances. How simple and satisfying such a reality would have been! It's important to note at this juncture that alongside the authorities were a number of spectators. Nothing surprising there, other than the fact that I recognized one of them from the crowd in Wombleton, the pink-haired senior with the shrill voice. Only this time she wasn't quite so hysterical. In fact, she displayed no emotion whatsoever— as she watched Ellen and I depart. There was something about her old friend, and it wasn't the last time we'd see her that day. <laughs> but I'll get to that. Later, in Rosedale, Ellen and I sat in the quiet solitude of my library, enjoying a pot of Darjeeling, 
and I should mention it. I cooked us up a pot of pay wallop. Ha! How long has it been, old friend? My young chum wolfed it down, I can tell you. <laughs> Perfect with a slice or two of buttered sourdough. After dinner, we spent a bit of time trolling through books. We were on the lookout for references to Hamilton Watermill, or a mill of any kind located due north of St. Gregory's Minster. Finding no mention of it, we turned our attentions to the curious pocket-book. Do any of these notes mean anything to you? Ellen asked as we scoured its limited pages. Mm, "'I'm afraid not,' I said, shaking my head in puzzlement. "'Our only option is to attempt to gain access to this purported mill,' I added, flipping once more to the page on which the rough map of Hodgebeck was sketched. "'I was hoping you'd say that,' came Ellen's expected response. She grinned as she said it, and I have no problem admitting that I grinned back. The illustration of Hodgebeck indicated a spot off Starfitt's Lane that seemed to suggest a potential parking area, which, with a bit of luck, would bring us within a mile of the sought-after mill. Looking at Ellen, I asked, Are you happy to drive us there in the morning? My emerald-eyed friend nodded, sipping at her fourth cup of Darjeeling. As the evening wore on, my young chum and I discussed all aspects of what had become a rather extraordinary day. We went over the local legends, from the first sighting of the dogman in the Rydale town of Helmsley, to the bar guest of York. Ellen seems to enjoy my prattling on. <laughs> I imagine she'd enjoy a selection of your tales, too, old friend. Parallels were drawn between the dogman and the creature Ellen had glimpsed fleeing from Wombleton, but I pointed out that the two beasts were unlikely to be one and the same, as the dogman had been described as a shaggy, bipedal animal. As for the bar guest, well, a big black dog with large teeth and keen claws. Outwardly this beast fit the bill perfectly, but it certainly wasn't some ethereal omen of death that had taken a piece out of Michael Dean. Or was it? I wanted to pursue this idea, but it would have been hasty to speculate further without adequate introspection. No, that discussion would have to wait for the morrow. And then, just before midnight, there came a light tapping at my door. This old friend would have been unsettling any day, but after the day Ellen and I had had that Knocking brought with it a disconcerting measure of horror. "'Are you expecting someone?' Ellen asked, her voice barely above a whisper. "'At midnight?' I returned, my eyebrows raised. Ellen shrugged her shoulders. "'There are stranger things than midnight callers, Peter.' "'True,' I said, climbing to my feet." but I have a feeling that this particular midnight caller probably is one of those stranger things. We managed to chuckle then, before the pervasive veil of dread once again lowered itself over the cottage. I spent what felt like a thousand years creeping through the cottage, Ellen at my rear, the two of us taut with tension. The knocking came again. We crept into the hall by the stairs— and edged along the shadowy passage towards the door. Outside, 
The street lamp which towers above my humble abode cast its yellow light on the door, and there beyond the thin frosted pane inset we saw the silhouette of a figure, a stooped figure, familiar somehow. We stopped in our tracks, as before our eyes the figure began to expand. What the hell is it? Ellen managed from her position behind me. I simply shook my head, then held my breath, as a terrible sound filled the night air. The dark head of the figure tipped backwards, revealing the outline of a long muzzle, and it was from that weird conical shape that that horrible cry had sounded, a frightful, shrill howl filled with tenacity. "'It's a call!' I whispered. "'A call to the others!' Promptly, Ellen shuffled away from me, and returned moments later clutching the small pocket-book. "'What?' I began, as my emerald-eyed friend rushed past me and approached the front door. She took a deep breath and yanked the door open, coming face to face with a statuesque horror standing there, a gigantic, fur-covered beast up on its hind legs, the head of a vast wolf, the hair atop of which was pink. "'Ellen!' I yelled. The creature ceased its appalling cry, dropped to all fours, and gazed at my young friend with ferocious red eyes. Saliva spilled from sagging jowls, as uncanny vocalization sought to deprive us of our sanity. And then my young friend Ellen Moore shocked me. She held the pocketbook up in front of her, its back turned to face the monstrous shapeshifter at the door. The creature recoiled instantly, as Ellen said quite calmly, "'You're not welcome here.' I was in awe of the girl who had once been in the thrall of a hidden one. Such confidence, such strength. The pink-haired wolf growled horribly, as rather abruptly it withered before us, becoming something much less than a monster. A naked, elderly lady, wrinkled like a raisin, her expression a mask of hate, her slick, rosy hair almost comical in the yellow light of the street lamp. Empty laughter sounded from the senior before us. Then she turned, and took her chuckles off into the night, to be met by further distant chuckles, the sources of which were only too obvious. On the doorstep below us, a curious, shallow puddle of murky water met our eyes, right where the dreadful shapeshifter had been standing. My friend Ellen, her pale face clearly visible against her long dark hair and black sweatshirt, closed the door and returned to my side, smiling. "'What can I say?' I uttered, lighting a cigarette. Ellen nodded assertively. Then, "'Cup of tea?' Well, old friend, it was a queer night that followed. As she had a number of times before, Ellen slept on the daybed in the living room, with me opting for a camp bed in the library. With thoughts of our nocturnal visitor clouding our minds, neither of us were too keen on the idea of being too far separated. On one occasion, the very top of the witching hour, I think it was, we were forced from our beds by a terrible screeching in the rear garden. Did you hear that, Peter? 
Ellen asked as she glided into the library. Hear it, I replied from my position by the rear window, my eyes searching the coal-black space beyond for signs of life. I'm astonished it didn't shatter the glass. And what a roar it was, Wyndham! A guttural cry meant to intimidate. Strange sounds dogged us all night. Whispers and cackles, forlorn howls and low growls. Things were abroad in Rosedale. Cohorts of the pink-haired lady? A little after five a.m., the commotion promptly ceased. The originators of the racket, choosing to return to wherever it was they had sprung from. Wombleton? Or somewhere further north? Ellen and I managed a few hours' sleep then, before rising at eight. First on the agenda that morning was the preparation of the French press, into which I dumped four generous scoopfuls of a fruity Ethiopian blend. I dressed for the adventure ahead, while Ellen helped herself to an almond croissant. Yes, the very same we enjoyed last summer, old friend. My young chum established a driving route that would take us directly to the suspected parking spot off Starfitt's Lane, and off we went, with, of course, a number of basic necessities added to my satchel. I'll get to those later. The drive was somewhere in the region of twenty-five minutes, and as such, Ellen wanted to know everything I could tell her regarding the so-called cult of Yana. If the beasts in our midst bore relation to that cult, then it was essential that I disclose everything I could. Again, forgive me for telling you something you already know, old friend, but here's the conversation that followed. Well, I began, it all comes down to what is known about the creature at the heart of the cult, Yana. What is known about Yana? Ellen asked, negotiating the quiet country lanes with great care. The Slovenian legend, I continued, suggests that Yana came down from the Julian Alps, a being outre, not meant to walk among men. Which brings me back to the notion of the bar guest. I puffed on a cigarette, searching my memory cells for long-buried facts. It's a German term, I said, burgeist or mounting ghost. Stands to reason that a creature fitting the description of the bar guest would have its origins in the mountains, deep in the mountains at that. Deep in the mountains? Ellen asked for clarification. Well, my feeling is that Yana is more than just a burgeist. It's a rover of subterranean passages, an occupant of the inner earth, loosed somehow from a world of shadows and firelight. Ellen shuddered at this description. Like the wolf, it prowled the underground, it and its kin, scavengers of the deep, and like the shapeshifter, it and its kin proved to be intolerable to the higher intelligences of the deeps, and, I suspect, was hunted to near extinction. Yarn is the last of its kind? My young friend hazarded. I'm postulating, I went on. A boots-on-the-ground expedition would be required to verify such a theory, but I think it's possible that Yana's alleged drowning in Ventgur Gorge was anything but. What if Yana was of the water, 
and used it as a conduit through which to prey upon those who sought to harm it, and to transform those who worship it into fellow bar guests. Perhaps then, ventured Ellen, a more fitting description would be water ghost. How right you may be! Makes one wonder about the nature of the innocent Kelpie, doesn't it? A fascinating conversation we had in my emerald-eyed friend's mauve car. It seemed highly plausible to me that this particular breed of shape-shifting werewolf had learned to use the humble watercourse as its primary means of travel, and, as I mentioned earlier, hardly incapable of crossing brooks, rivers, and streams. No, if this was the bar-guest of legend, there were important questions to ask about its true nature. What do you make of this idea, old friend? Further research is required, of course, and I say this even after the events that transpired shortly after Ellen and I parked the car off Starfit's Lane. We had a devil of a time locating that parking spot, for it wasn't really a parking spot at all. It was more of an overgrown passing point, hardly fit for purpose. We left the car behind, dipping into an opening in the wild shrubbery bordering the lane. Visibility was poor beyond that border, owing mainly to an area of dense undergrowth, through which we were forced to forge our way with our bare hands, red raw they were when we finally located Hodgebeck. Along a narrow trail we headed north, avoiding the thorns and brambles wherever possible. It was tough going— Aren't these sorts of excursions always tough-going, old friend? But we finally emerged alongside a sheer brick wall, partially obscured by a group of angry-looking willows hell-bent on reclaiming their territory. Hamilton Watermill, I'm guessing, voiced Ellen. I nodded in agreement, searching for a means of ingress. Let's follow the perimeter, I suggested, as we made our way fumblingly around the building— sandwiched, as it were, between brick and foliage. The silence of the place was profound. Not a sound could be heard above the perpetual rustling resulting from our efforts in the undergrowth. It was clear to me from the noiselessness alone that there was something to discover at the mill, something potentially hostile. Tell me, Wyndham— what, other than hostility, can be responsible for the absence of wildlife in a wild place? It wasn't long before we happened upon the sought-after ingress, a rectangular aperture that might have once housed a window. We paused before it, took a moment to collect ourselves. I withdrew a cigarette, lit it, and puffed keenly. "'Any idea what we'll find in there?' my young friend asked, watching the clouds of smoke dissipate above my head. I have to admit that I wasn't certain. The elements of the case were disparate. A wolf-like creature stalking Wombleton, a shapeshifter amongst the Wombleton residents, one man bitten, another man killed, and the pervasive notion of a mysterious Slovenian cult. Connected? How? I'm not certain, Ellen. I began hesitantly, but I have a strong feeling that water is at the bottom of the mystery. The young man, Michael Dean, soaked following his attack. 
the body of John McConnell at St. Gregory's, covered in mud, the puddle of water on the doorstep last night, and the curious pocket-book found at the church, filled with maps pertaining to watercourses, which, ultimately, led us to our present location, a water-mill. But why here? Ellen quizzed, a thing that supposedly originated in the Julian Alps. Remember what I said yesterday? As cults grow, cults spread. The cult of Yana has spread into the British Isles, and judging by the presence of that ward at St. Gregory's, it has been here a long time. A moment of silence passed on the threshold. I extinguished my cigarette, and nodded. We climb through the window. Our immediate surroundings were unremarkable. A large open space, devoid of furnishings, with plain brick walls. Light streamed in from other, higher apertures, like spotlights on a stage, each opening permitting the advance of limbs and leaves belonging to overhanging trees, the extended arms of willows, clutching, or dare I say, shielding, the time-worn structure from the world at large. It was a secret place, for sure, but certainly not a forgotten place, for, several paces ahead of us, we observed an archway leading into an even larger space, at the centre of which, just beyond the glare of the numerous spotlights, could be seen an opening in the stone floor. "'What is that?' Ellen uttered, squinting to get a better look at the cavity. "'There's only one way to find out,' I said stupidly. We crossed the empty space, ducked under the arch, and approached what we now saw to be a broad pool of dark, murky water. "'It's a bath,' I observed. "'Potentially a fortification. This, I added, owing to clumps of coarse black fur on the surface of the strange pool. "'Fortification?' my emerald-eyed friend asked. I nodded, dropping to my knees in order to dip a hand into the stagnant water. "'Why do we put ourselves through these things, old friend?' "'What are you doing?' Ellen quizzed over my shoulder. "'It's warm,' I noted, sending ripples across the grimy, fur-covered surface. "'Meaning?' Ellen begged. "'Meaning?' I began to say, only to stop myself. I stood upright and retreated. I reached into my satchel and produced a couple of items, a piece of charcoal and a fist-sized piece of raw amber from my gemstone collection. "'Come here, Ellen,' I instructed, and proceeded to mark her forehead with the charcoal. "'What are you doing?' Ellen quizzed for the second time in as many minutes. The cult of Yana symbol. The ward. I'm marking you with it. Ellen nodded, adding, And the amber? I'll explain shortly, I said. Then, having completed my sketch, insisted Ellen mark my forehead in the same manner. Whatever you say, Peter. Job done. Ellen returned the charcoal to me, and I directed us to the far corner of the space, a dark recess hidden from view. Now, this amber thing, I began, if this bath or pool is what I think it is, 
then it may be that we can neutralize it with fossilized tree resin. And you know this how, exactly? Ellen asked, a look of befuddlement creasing her pale face. Call it intuition. Listen. And I proceeded to tell her what I knew of dissolution pools. I'm not sure if you've come across them in your time, old friend. So, on the off chance you haven't, allow me to tell you what I told Ellen. I first read of dissolution pools in Jericho's Sorcerella, and more recently in Thomas Blackwood's Red Book. The Sorcerella describes a dissolution pool as an alchemical body of water, into which a living organism may be submerged in order to be preserved indefinitely. Blackwood's Red Book describes it in much the same way, whilst adding that the components of a dissolution pool might very well allow living organisms to remain conscious while submerged, permitting them to move freely through waterways, streams, canals, etc. So, I said to Ellen, in the shadows of the mill, my working theory is this. Yana, loosed from the inner earth, sought to survive on the banks of Lake Bled. Its plunge into the cold waters of Vintka Gorge didn't result in drowning. Not at all. This was a deep one, born of the subterranean waters of mounting caverns, gifted with the inherent ability to dissolve itself in water, to transport itself from one end of the earth to the other, through its manifold waterways, to establish new dissolution pools for its transmogrified worshippers, so that they might be protected from the threat of mankind. Threat of mankind? Ellen repeated, her eyes wide. Yana was an innocent, an otherworldly creature punished by humanity for attempting to quench its hunger. And now, here in North Yorkshire, History is, yet again, repeating itself. And then, old friend, just as I finish speaking, the pool of water little more than a few meters away from us began to effervesce. Ellen and I looked on in horror, as what I'd taken to be shed fur adhered with a familiar repetition to a number of shapes that were now rising from the heart of the pool. One, two, Three, four, and then a fifth canine head breached the surface of the water, sniffing the air with intent. Dark eyes, glowing a deep red, scanned the empty room, seeking us, the interlopers. Our shaded corner offered no protection. The creatures located us almost instantly, and as they did so, the remainder of their giant forms emerged from the pool— Huge, monstrous wolves, towering high above us, moving towards us, the smell of wet dog permeating the space. "'Don't move, Ellen,' I whispered, and attempted to reassure her by waving a finger over my forehead. "'We're protected.' "'Oh, Wyndham, I've been in many a terrifying situation in my time. But this particular situation brought with it the genuine belief—' that I'd ran out of luck, that the end of me was imminent, and that I'd brought poor Ellen Moore along to share my fate. But that wasn't to be the case at all. The five beasts surrounded us, wet and glistening, 
almost iridescent in the beams of light shooting down from above. But they didn't bare their teeth, didn't growl, didn't lean back on their haunches ready to pounce. No, old friend, they simply stood before us, five wild beasts, the children of a creature beyond the ken of man, the children of Yana, the liberated Deep One. The largest of the beasts stood at the centre of the pack, the suggestion of pink hair atop its wedge-shaped head very familiar to both Ellen and I. The transformation was swift. She and she alone shapeshifted before our wide, staring eyes. To watch the metamorphosis in the diffuse light of that humid chamber was to witness a miracle. To watch the thick hair contract into pale, wrinkled skin. To see the bones and joints twist and contort, the snapping and popping a thrill to hear. To observe the head wither and distort, like the twilight years of a man's life glimpsed in a few fleeting moments. I tell you, old friend, there was nothing supernatural about that transformation. This was Mother Nature at her most creative. What could we say? What could we do? Nothing but stand and stare. Ellen and I were frozen in place. The piece of amber clutched in my hand tore into my flesh, drew blood. So now you know, came the high-pitched tones of the elderly lady before us. And I did. Somehow, I did. The wolves of Wombleton were you and I, our friends, our neighbours, transformed not by the vicious fangs of the werewolf, but by something else entirely. Something that slithered through waters the world over. Something that sought to survive in the brave new world into which it had found itself eons earlier. You, I said, addressing the lady directly. All of you. Ayana. Yeah, she said, nodding. Lives in all of us. Her companions nodded in kind. Michael Dean. He learned your secret, didn't he? Yeah, the naked lady said again, threatened to go after Nolia with rifle. She gestured towards the shortest of the wolves, standing at the back of the pack, head cowed. And the steward? I pressed. What did he do? The pink-haired lady sighed. Saw Noel passing through the cemetery on his way to Beck. Their keepers at faith. Steward wanted to have him. Wanted to have him? Aye, she said. Keepers at faith don't need no rifle tunters down. Noel did what he had to. What about this? I said, and reached into my satchel to retrieve the little pocket book. The pink-haired lady's eyes lit up as she saw it. You've been searching for this, haven't you? She nodded eagerly. They've been tracking us for years, she said, gloomily. Found it at the church, did you? Yes, I confirmed. It's been there many a year. None have ventured up here, though. Till you two, that is. Something like fear crept into the lady's eyes. I handed her the book. She took it, and I shivered as her calloused hands brushed against mine, hands that only moments before had been covered with wet, 
matted fur. The wrinkly matriarch smiled then, a cold, somber smile, and I sensed that our conversation was at an end. Thank you, came her parting words. She turned, and, in a matter of moments, had returned to the pool with her companions. As the figures sank into the murky waters, Helen and I watched in awe, as the pocketbook, clutched in the hand of the pink-haired lady, slowly dissolved, like sugar mice in rain. The stretch of silence that followed our outre encounter seemed to last an eternity. We simply gawped at the dissolution pool, and I know that both of us pondered its depths. What would it feel like to be overtaken by Yana, to be transmogrified as those five, and assuredly many, many others had been? To tell you the truth, I was shocked. Had the pink-haired lady's visit the previous night been simply a courtesy? The display thereafter, the cries and howls that dominated the silent night and attempt to dissuade Ellen and I from learning the truth? I had no choice but to light a cigarette. The clicking of the lighter resounded a dozen times, calming me somewhat. Their victims. This from Ellen— her sharp eyes locked on the pool, her thoughts high above the earth, pondering the nature of life on this little blue sphere. I nodded in agreement, puffing away at what I was mortified to learn had been the last cigarette in the packet. "'Let's get out of here,' I said, returning the piece of amber to my satchel. We left the way we came— which, unfortunately, meant that we were unable to get a look at the water-wheel or turbine on the way out. I'm a stickler for those things. We returned to Rosedale, and, as is my wont, I filled a teapot to the brim for the two of us. We sat in the comfort of the library, and discussed the enormity of events that had transpired in such a short period of time—little over twenty-four hours— to conclude, old friend, it is my firm belief that the wolves of Wombleton, the Helmsley Dogmen, the North Yorkshire Bar Guest, or whatever you want to call them, are of no threat to your average citizen. Why? Because many of them are your average citizens, moving through life much in the same way we do, whilst doing everything in their power to remain undetected. How much of their lives they spend suspended in water, I don't know. Perhaps they're nomadic in nature, living in an area for as long as they feel they're safely able to, before moving on to the next place. Thus far, I've uncovered no evidence to suggest that these elusive creatures prey upon their friends and neighbours. I mean, how often does one actually hear of a wild dog attack here in Great Britain? but I'm preaching to the choir here. This, of course, is our field of expertise, old friend. We're both well aware of what's out there, and where the real dangers lie. As for Yana, could it really be that Yana exists in all of these creatures, responsible for their lycanthropy and their ability to dissolve in water? Perhaps, but it's impossible to know for sure, without taking a trip overseas. How does a spot of exploration in the Julian Alps sound, old friend? <laughs> I'm sure we can convince Norman to join us. 
But never mind that for now. Have I told you everything you needed to know? Can I rest assured that you won't take matters into your own hands and attempt to pay these creatures a visit? Keep in mind what I said at the very beginning. Caution should be exercised in terms of what you intend to do with this information. There could be consequences. Severe consequences. If threatened, the children of Yana will defend themselves. Should you seek them out, as a precaution, be sure to mark yourself with the following symbol. I imagine we'll speak again shortly. Yours faithfully, Peter. Hello, ladies and gents. Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links. <laughs>